A reading from Mark, chapter 12, 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am not the God of Abraham, am I, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're back in Mark chapter 12 this week. And uh, Jesus is in the last week of his life. Uh, from chapter 11 on to the end, it's a pretty quick pace. But chapter 12 is, is saturated with a number of arguments or debates that Jesus has with uh, the Jewish religious establishment and even the social and political stakeholders of his day. And here, uh, last week we saw the Pharisees and um, the Herodians came, or two weeks ago, the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus asking about, about politics. But this passage, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they want to debate theology with him. And they come asking him a question about the resurrection. And with every intention of trying to disprove that the, there is no resurrection and to confront Jesus on this matter. And Jesus actually, in turn, he counters their question with a pretty scathing rebuke and a fairly straightforward Bible lesson. And so what I want to do uh, as we look at this passage is try to grasp what Jesus is trying to teach us here, which if I had to summarize that for us, it would be simply this, that in this passage... Jesus teaches us that the reality of the resurrection isn't speculative. It's, in fact, woven into the very promises of God throughout the entire Bible, and even it's at the heart of the very purpose for which he came into the world. So let's look at this passage under these headings. I want to look at the question that these Sadducees ask, and then the rebuke that Jesus gives, and then we're going to finish with the assurance of the resurrection. So first, let's look at this question that they ask. Why, why do these Sadducees even come to Jesus and ask this question? There are at least two reasons that are uh, distinct to the Sadducees, and then one reason that uh, really comes out of Jesus' previous ministry. But the two reasons why the Sadducees come to Jesus asking this question about the resurrection is because, first of all, the Sadducees only believed 
in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. It's called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament as God's word. This is one of the major distinctions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, not only did they believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, they believed the entire Old Testament along with a large body of oral tradition that had come up around the scriptures to help God's people keep them, which we looked at that back when we looked in Mark chapter 7. But not only did the the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Bible, they also didn't believe in angels and demons or an afterlife. In other words, they were rather anti-supernatural. That also distinguished them from the Pharisees, who did believe in an afterlife, who did believe in the resurrection, who did believe in a spiritual realm beyond which you could taste and see and measure and touch. And so, for those two reasons, they didn't believe that the first five books of the the Bible taught an afterlife or a resurrection from the dead, and they were rather anti-supernatural. And then Jesus, if you remember, in that chapters 8 through 10, three different times he says, the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. That the central message of Jesus was that he had to suffer and die and rise again. Which didn't agree at all with the Sadducees' understanding of what the Bible taught. And so they come to Jesus and they're thinking, where does Jesus get this idea of of the resurrection? We We need to out him about that. And so they have come up with a rather ingenious riddle, if you will. In verses 19 through 23, they come to him and they, uh, quoting the uh, heavyweight, they quote Moses, and they say, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now they're quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it was a provision, a law that God had given, it was called the Leverite it's called a leveret marriage. And the way it worked was if, if one of your brothers in your family was married and his wife or, or, and your brother died and he had no children, then it was the brother's responsibility to marry his dead brother's wife and carry on his brother's name by having offspring with his dead brother's wife. And we, the only other time we really see this is the story of Judah and Tamar towards the end of Genesis. But this law was a way to actually carry on a brother's name to make sure that the inheritance that was rightly his would continue on and take care of his widow and children. It was a way to provide... It was, a, it was a law of mercy. So, for example, one commentator describes this provision like this, leveret marriage, it was an ancient solution to the hardship and vulnerability of the widowed and childless woman. A childless widow had no, no secure place in ancient society. And in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, he 
uh, commentates on, on this very passage from Deuteronomy, and he says this, When a woman is left childless on her husband's death, the husband's brother shall marry her and shall call the child that shall be born by the name of the deceased and rear him as heir to the estate. For this will at once be profitable to the public welfare, houses not dying out and property remaining with the relatives. And it will moreover bring the women an alleviation of their misfortune to live with the nearest kinsmen of their former husband. Now, I realize that that sounds really strange to us. That that's a, We don't do that today. But what I do want you to see here is that the, the purpose of that law in Deuteronomy 25 was a detailed expression of what we see throughout the Old Testament. Again and again, God calls his people to show uh, righteousness and justice and kindness and mercy to the, to the orphan, to the widow, to the stranger, to the alien. And this is a specific example of what that might look like. But... None of that factors in to this debate between Jesus and the Sadducees. In fact, the, the Sadducees see in this a, a, uh, an argument against the resurrection, which what is, I find fascinating about that is these Sadducees are experts in the Bible, and this is one of those examples of using Scripture in a way that was never intended to be used. But they do it anyway, and they come up with this fascinating hypothetical though it may be, riddle, where they pose to Jesus, they're these seven brothers. And uh, each of them, uh, the first one, he takes a wife and he dies. And then the second brother marries this woman and he dies. And the third brother marries that woman and he dies and so on until all seven brothers are dead. And then he, they ask the question, so in the resurrection, whose wife will this uh, woman be? Which, to which man does this woman belong? And the, the question here is really rather speculative, but in the, in, the, in, the, in the Sadducees' mind, it renders the whole idea of the resurrection ridiculous. And what I want you to notice here is as we move on to, to look at the rebuke that Jesus gives them, the way in which they handle the Bible here and the way in which they approach Jesus with it is, is something that we see again and again and Jesus' indictment of the religious leaders failing to see God's character in the Scriptures. His heart for the lost. His heart for the poor. His heart for the disenfranchised. Instead, they end up using the scriptures for their own purposes, their own theological arguments, and they miss God's heart for his people. And so, Jesus, however, even though these Sadducees saw in this, in this riddle of theirs what they saw as an airtight argument against the idea of the resurrection, Jesus swiftly rebukes them. Look in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now, think with me for a moment about what Jesus just said here. 
Jesus, up until very recently, has been wandering around Galilee, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's uh, stayed relatively distant from Jerusalem and the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin, which we've talked about in recent weeks. That, that is the most powerful religious body in Judaism. And here he says to one branch of that group, you could not be more wrong. And not only are you wrong, you are wrong in the areas where you think you are the most right. So for Jesus to, to say this to these uh, members of this group of the Sadducees, it would be like Jesus accusing or claiming that Wall Street knows nothing about finance. <laughs> Which I suppose some of us might actually today think, yeah, they don't know a whole lot about finance. But go with me on that. It'd be like Jesus saying, no one on Wall Street knows anything about money and finance. Or perhaps a little bit closer to home. Um, it'd be like saying that Nick Saban knows nothing about football. That's the weight and seriousness of what Jesus is saying. He's essentially saying what you think you know about Scripture and what you think and know about the power of God, you are entirely mistaken. And, you know, it's, not, it's never comfortable being told you're wrong. It's never comfortable under any circumstances. And it's slightly maybe less uncomfortable when you know that you're in the wrong. And somebody confronts you or rebukes you. But it's never comfortable when you don't see it coming. Especially when that rebuke comes into your life about a part of your life where you are the most competent. Where you have the most experience. Where you know the most of what you're talking about. And yet... If we're willing to see it, if we're willing to accept it, the nature of this rebuke that Jesus gives to these Sadducees really is, it is the way that it opens the way to true spiritual life. See, here's what, how this works. Jesus here asserts that what these Sadducees claim to know best, they in fact know the least. They are vulnerable not at their weak spots, but at their strong points. And you see, the path into true spiritual life, the life that the gospel brings, requires us to admit that not only are we weak in in our weak spots, for sure, but are you willing to admit that perhaps your strengths are your greatest weaknesses? That your competence, your accomplishments are perhaps the greatest barriers to you enjoying and discovering the life that Jesus brings. What what, what does all that mean? Well, here's uh, what I think it means. What Jesus is implicitly calling for here is a radical reassessment of your life. And we could put it like this. Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, and by way of that rebuke uh, also to us, it means that we need to repent not only of the bad things that we do, but we need to repent of the very reasons that we've ever done anything good. And another way to put that is like this. If you you, uh, can recall Luke chapter 18, 
There's a story there of a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee, they're both um, in, in the temple or synagogue, and, and they're, they're praying. And the Pharisees just praying, thanking God for how he's not like other people. How he prays all the time, and he gives what he should give, and he uh, lives a faithful life. And he thanks God he's not like this tax collector. And the tax collector, on the other hand, won't even look up from the ground. And all he can say is, God have mercy. I'm a sinner. And the story ends by Jesus saying, who walked away justified? The implication is the tax collector did. And the reason is, the Pharisee only repents of the wrong things that he does. Pharisees repent of their sin all the time. They, they understand that. But what they refuse to repent of is their righteousness. And if you want to understand what makes a Christian a Christian, this is really important because I think Christians, myself included, we forget this. But also, the vast majority of people who find Christianity so repugnant have never heard or understood this point. That what makes a Christian a Christian isn't that they repent of their sin. What makes a Christian a Christian is someone who repents of their righteousness. Now, why is that? Because a Christian understands that even their best deeds fall short of God's standard. Isaiah actually says, even our best efforts are but filthy rags. Why is that so important? The reason it's so important is if you are unwilling to see that even the very reasons you've ever done anything good need the death of Jesus, what you're essentially saying is, I only need Jesus for half of my problem. I only need Jesus' righteousness for the bad things I do, but the good things I do, that measures up. That, that's as good as Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus' rebuke here, when he comes to these Sadducees and he confronts them, not at their weakest, but at their strongest point, is telling us to understand and to enter into true spiritual life, we need to, we need to learn how to repent of our righteousness. And then there's no question that when you, uh, when you learn that Christianity is all about free grace, that it doesn't and it cannot depend on you, it is a severe blow to our pride. It is a severe blow to our selfish ambition. It undercuts every attempt we might have to build our own sense of worth that can actually stand the scrutiny of God's righteousness, of his perfect love, of his perfect grace. And that can be incredibly disruptive. For anybody who has grappled with this and and, uh, taken it into your very life, it can be incredibly disruptive and it can be very scary because it exposes all those things that you build your life on. No one wants to build their life on 
all their screw-ups, the bad things they do, at least not on purpose. But to some degree in our day and age, this entire culture is built on you gaining your worth and your value from your accomplishments, from your competence. And the gospel says that'll never work. It'll never work because you'll either always be afraid of losing that competence or being outdone by somebody else's competence or you will never stop working in order to attain that competence that you, you just believe you have to have to be all right. So what do we do when we're knocked off of our pedestal like Jesus does to these Sadducees? Well, we need the assurance of the resurrection. Look here, verses 26, 25, 26, and 27. And as we do that, while Jesus is embroiled in this debate with the Sadducees, I want to remind us of, of another story that uh, when Jesus is uh, with Lazarus and his sister Martha in John chapter 11. It's shortly after Lazarus, one of his best friends, we, as we are told, he dies. And Jesus gets there three or four days after he's dead. And Martha comes to Jesus when he arrives. And she says, if you had been here, he would still be alive. And he's uh, talking with Martha. And she's clearly and understandably distraught and grieving. And Jesus says this to her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, Jesus, as he's talking with the Sadducees, he isn't simply arguing for the resurrection here. He is the resurrection and the life. So when he confronts the Sadducees, they are actually indicting him. And Jesus wants us to understand how we can believe this, that he is the resurrection and the life. So how does he do it? Look here in verse 26 and 27. In the same way that these Sadducees quote from Moses in verse 19, Jesus does the same thing. He doesn't appeal to anywhere else in the Old Testament to prove belief in the resurrection. He actually goes to the very same place the Sadducees went. But instead of going to Deuteronomy 25, Jesus takes them to Exodus chapter 3, which we read earlier. It's the great chapter where, where God calls Moses at the burning bush. And he calls Moses to be the savior of his people. To go to Pharaoh and to deliver his people out of bondage so that they might worship him. And in that passage here, Jesus, it's, it's as if he's quoting. They didn't have, uh, you know, verse numbers and, and chapter numbers uh, in Jesus' day. He says, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
Now, you might not find that uh, all that persuasive for proving the resurrection. But Jesus certainly does. And it's worth asking, why does he point to this passage? He points to this passage in Exodus chapter 3 to prove the resurrection because the resurrection is about God. See, when he quotes here, when God says uh, to Abraham, or to Moses, uh, that he is supposed to go back to the people and say, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What he's doing, he's reminding Moses about his covenant promises. He's reminding Moses about the commitment that he has made to his people. Not because they're so worthy of it, or they're so obedient, but because he keeps his promises. So when he says here, Jesus quoting these words of God, that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, Jesus is teaching us that the resurrection, it's the logical outworking, it's the logical outworking of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. If God is the savior of his people, what Jesus is saying, he didn't just come to save you from the oppressive rule of of Pharaoh. He came to rescue you from death itself. And how you know that is that he is a God who keeps his promises and the way that he tells you that is he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In other words, what's so important and lasting for these major figures in the Bible isn't the name that they made for themselves or the legacy that they left, but the God to whom they belong. And so Jesus, when he goes to this story in Exodus chapter 3, it's a story that the Sadducees would have recognized. And he begins with God and his character to answer their objection. And there's, there's a lesson for us in this. What do you do when you find yourself with questions and doubts by the God of the Bible. Where should you go with those? Jesus here teaches us the very first place you need to go, even if you find yourself not believing in this God, the place to begin is to go back to who God is. Who does God reveal himself to be? Put it, put it a little bit more in our terms. It would be like if I write you a letter and I tell you uh, where I'm from and what I do and who I'm married to and who my children are and experiences I had growing up, and you get that letter and, uh, and then you end up telling, we end up meeting and you end up saying to me, you didn't do that. That's not where you're from. That's not what you do. That's not who you're married to. If I did that to you, you'd think I'm crazy. And the reason is because you're not actually taking me at my word in the way in which I have revealed myself to you. In the same way, God asks you to listen to him. To take him seriously according to the way that he wants you to know him. And he wants you to know him as a God of the living 
not the God of the dead. Now, because this, the resurrection is rooted in God's promises and His power to save, as Jesus points us to here in verse 26, you need to realize, too, that it will be unlike anything we've ever imagined. Look in verse 25. Jesus says, and this is in reply to the question to the Sadducees, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, uh, I could get you 20 different commentaries on this verse, and they all are going to start out talking about this verse the same way. They're going to say, man, I wish Jesus would tell us more about what he means. It's a rather opaque verse. It's not particularly full of detail. And yet, I think there's plenty here to point us to some wonderful, beautiful news. Let me try to show you what I think Jesus is saying. Jesus' point in this, in verse 25, it's not that in the resurrection we will turn into angels. That would be a rather surface way of reading this in verse 25. But rather what Jesus is saying, we will be like the angels in this sense. That we will experience the intimacy, the love, and the joy that they do. We will experience the intimacy, the love, and the joy of perfect communion with Jesus around his table at his wedding supper where he will feed you and rejoice with you and delight with you for eternity. Now, what does that mean then for this bit about they will neither be given, uh, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage? Again, I would love for Jesus to explain more about that. But what I think we can say is that marriage, according to the Bible, is never intended to be an end in itself. It's always a glimpse of God's relationship to his people. In fact, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5, that marriage points to Jesus' love for the church, that he gave up his life for his people. Now, what that means is that marriage should never be thought of as something that we own or that it is an end in itself, but it's always something that is intended to give you a glimpse of the future, a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of the joy and the love and the intimacy that you will have with God forever. That you will one day experience perfect communion and fellowship where there's no tears, there's no sorrow, there's no pain, there's no guilt, there's no shame. You will be perfectly known and perfectly loved and you will see Jesus face to face and you will never be cast out. And that will be true not only for us with him but with one another. That we will experience perfect friendship, perfect fellowship with one another. Now what might this mean practically? Let me just give you two quick quick ways to think about this, if you're married and if you're not married. If you're not, if you are married, what this means is that you should not expect to be the perfect spouse, 
And you should not expect your spouse to be the perfect spouse. Because marriage isn't an end in itself. Marriage, according to Scripture, is meant to point you to the perfect spousal love of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? If you're married, what that means is your marriage is now, it's a mutual undertaking. It's a mutual uh, ministry together where you can to discover the riches of the gospel, the riches of Christ's love for you. That's the purpose of marriage, according to Scripture. It takes a lot of pressure off. You do not have to be the perfect spouse. You can't be. Now, some of you know that all too well. Maybe it's a little bit harder to to not expect that of your spouse. But both of you need the gospel to enjoy marriage this side of heaven. But what if you're not married? If you're not married, as wonderful as marriage can be, it's derivative of Jesus' love for you on the cross. See, in in view of the gospel, marriage is not the end-all, be-all of life this side of heaven. Now, what does that mean? If you're not married, what that means is you can still long to be married, and that is a good thing. You can still long to be married without feeling like your life is incomplete or that your life is on hold without marriage. Because in the gospel, you are told and you are given the riches of what marriage points to. And you actually are given the hope of the resurrection. That perfect relationship with Jesus that will be yours one day. Now, as we come to a conclusion from this passage, I think when you look at from this passage and those that before it, it's, it's quite clear that those that you would think would know better fail to receive and trust in Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the, the elders, the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all see him as an enemy. They fail to grasp who this is right in front of them, the Son of God, the one in whom God is well pleased. So then what then should we do to not make that same mistake? What does this passage teach you? What can you take away from it? Well, let me give you three quick, uh, three quick points, three quick things to think about. How do you not make that same mistake? The first is you need to invite Jesus' rebuke into your life. You need to welcome his correction. Think of it like this. If Jesus can never rebuke you, you you really don't have a real relationship with God. You have a relationship with a God of your own making. Because in the same way that our our friendships and marriages and, and family relationships work, you know you're in a real relationship with somebody when they love you enough to confront you and rebuke you. If God can't contradict you, you really are not in a real relationship with him. All you are in is a relationship with a God who is a yes man to you. So we need to invite Jesus' correction, his rebuke into your life, especially into the areas of your life where you think you're okay. Secondly, 
We need to ask Jesus to teach us to understand, understand Scripture the way that he does. To see as he does how all of the Scriptures point to him. You can look in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus says, All the law of the Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms are about me. We need to ask him to teach us to read the Bible the way that he would have us read it so that we would discover him and the promises of God that culminate in the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. And then third, we need to practice living our lives in light of that great day when we will feast with Jesus face to face. We need to practice living the present in light of the future. Because that day is coming. Jesus says he is the resurrection. He is the life. And he promises that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And he will come back so that you might dine with him and feast at his table. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we continue to worship this evening and as we ponder this passage where Jesus rebukes our foolishness and calls us to repent even of our righteousness and to find in your word the hope of the resurrection, not as a theological speculation, but as woven into and wedded to your character, your power, your salvation to make everything right and to make us right. Would you please help us? Help us to invite you in to receive your correction, to listen to you as we encounter the scriptures and to practice living our present lives in light of of the future. Please help us to do that for your glory and our good. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.